Yes, so we are in uh, a series in this, in this journey together called Taking Ground, and uh, we've been kind of like focused on a few different things, and we really believe the reason why Second Place exists, honestly, if we were to boil it down, is so that you grow in your faith. Not that you check off a box, not that you're just like, hey, went to church, hey, brave the snow, great, good job, but no, that actually you have a, a sense that you are maturing, growing, that your life with God is alive and that you are making progress. And so that's why we're here and you guys look good doing it. I love it. And, and one of the things that I talked about last week was this idea of limiting beliefs, that sometimes we can have a thought in our mind about a particular topic and it could be very, very limiting. It could be kind of like putting God in a box and it's, it's not the truth. There's liberating truths that kind of open us up and bring us freedom and bring us new chapters of our life where we're able to live in a new way because of what God is teaching us. And that's kind of the season that we're in. One of those things that we've been talking about last week, this week, and probably a couple more weeks is this idea of salvation by grace. Grace is such a deep and crazy thought. And some of us have kind of put grace in a box and it's, uh, it's limiting us in terms of the way that we think about it and how we move with God. And so as we think about this, we really believe at Second Place that there's a few things over these first 120 days that if we can just kind of lock these things down and really dig into them, dig into them a little bit here. Like the purpose of the way that things work, if you, maybe this is just kind of helping you guys a little bit, is that this weekend experience allows us to kind of bring up a topic and allow you to kind of individually wrestle with the topic and, and what you believe and kind of like try to deepen that faith. But then growth groups are a place where you can dialogue about that and begin to really see how others can speak into your life and God can use others in that discussion to deepen your belief in that as well. And, and so these, and these classes will as well, so everything kind of works together. And, and so today we're going to talk about grace, but before we dive in too quickly, I'm going to need two volunteers, and you know that I will wait you out. So I just need, to, just need two. All you need to do, the whiteboards are making a comeback, guys. All you need to do is hold a whiteboard for me. That's all you need to do. Let's see who's got it. I, I'm not volunteering anyone for you. No. Nope. All right. Carrie, let's hear it for Carrie of the Penwits and Sarah. Yep, you can go, go on that side a little bit. Yep, go right there. That's awesome. Okay, so now everybody say imagination. imagination. Good deal. You're going to use your imagination a little bit, and we're going to imagine ourselves on our walk of faith, and we're on a path, and we get to a fork in the road. And in the fork in the road is a sign, and it has two directional signs on it. One is pointing to the left where Carrie's at. Can I see your board? Oh, this is amazing. And this actually says, pleasing God. And that's where we're headed. Pleasing God is one sign. And the other sign says, trusting God. And this is a fork in the road. So we have to choose which way we're going to go. I don't know what you would do. I don't know which you would choose. When you think about pleasing God, it seems probably pretty okay. I mean, that's what we want to do with our life. We'd like to please God. Trusting God, as I look at that, trusting God seems a little too, I don't know, soft, a little too 
touchy-feely. I don't know. Just trust him. You know, it doesn't really feel like I could imagine a whole lot that I could actually dig in and do with trusting God. Now, pleasing God, though, pleasing God is pretty awesome because I can start to think of some things that I can do. I can think of the ways that maybe my life could please God. And so I don't know what you would choose, but we're going to choose in this scenario, we're going to choose going down the path of pleasing God. So we go down the path of pleasing God, and we notice that the road is very wide and it's worn. Many people have gone down this road. And as we go, we see a building, and it's the room of good intentions. And above the door to the room of good intentions is a sign. And the sign says this, striving to be all God wants me to be. Oh, that makes us think, oh yeah, that's, that's something I can work towards. Striving to be all that God wants me to be. And so we grab the door handle and we open it up. And just above the door handle, we see that it has a little placard that says self-effort. So we open the door and we go in the room and we're greeted by a hostess. And the hostess talks to us and says, hey, so how are you doing today? And you say, I'm fine. I'm just fine. How are you? Well, I'm fine too. Actually, everyone in the room is fine. That's interesting. Well, and as you talk about that, you're like, you know what though? I got into a fight with my wife this morning. And she says, you know what? Shh. And she hands you a mask and says, just, just put the mask on. You can go ahead and put that on. We're all wearing, and you notice, they're all wearing masks. Everyone in the room is wearing a mask. And in the back, at the back wall, you can see this banner that says this. It says, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. Hmm. And as you kind of see everyone kind of basically faking it, saying they're fine when, man, you're not. You definitely don't fit in with this crowd because if everyone's okay, you're definitely not. And finally, someone kind of elbows you and says, do you want to go back to the fork in the road? You're like, yeah, let's go. So you go to the fork in the road and you look back at pleasing God. You look at trusting God. You say, there's got to be a third option, too touchy. But you know what? There isn't a third option. The only other option is trusting God. So you say, well, let me go down that road. And you walk down that path. You notice that it's not a very well-worn path, kind of overgrown. But you're able to kind of navigate through and you get to another room. And this is the room of grace. You get to the room of grace and above the door, it says, living out of who God says I am. Living out of who God says I am. And you turn the handle to the door of grace, and the door just above that handle, it has a little placard that says, humility. And you open that door, and you walk into the room of grace, and you're greeted by a hostess, and she says, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm fine. And she says, no, really, like, how are you doing? You're like, well, you know, I got in a fight with my wife this morning. She's like, really? I get it. Yeah, there's a lot of times that we just don't always say the right thing. And someone in the back of the room says, what else do you got? Like, do you forget birthdays a lot? And you're like, yeah, I do. I actually have a hard time remembering mine. And he says, what else do you got? Besides, the, yeah, we got, how long do you have? And you realize, as you look to the back of the room, there's a banner on the back wall that says, Standing with God 
with my sin in front of me, working on it together. You read that sign and you realize that you're in a place where people are very real. Where are you at on that path? Where have you, have you gotten to the point where you've chosen one of the two paths? Because everyone has to choose. When you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to put him first, as we say, everything else is second place, then you have to choose, am I going to live and strive and be all about pleasing God, or am I going to be about trusting God? Can we hear it for these two? Thank you. You can set it right down there, Sarah. Perfect. Pleasing God or trusting God. I want to just highlight the fact that I'm indebted to um, a, a group of guys, Bill Thrall, Bruce McNichol, and John Lynch. They wrote a book called True Face. And I would tell you that I've had this book for years. There's another book that they wrote also called The Cure. This book, True Face, has changed my life. I read it several years ago. And the thoughts in this book and the idea and the presentation of grace has transformed my life. I honestly think, as I've talked to people about this topic, about the, the, the path and the fork in the road that they are presenting, I've said to them, you know, like in every organization, there's like certain ways that we act. Like obviously we're, we like to have fun, you know, Kelly and Sarah up here kind of cutting up, it's great. We like, to, we like to be able to laugh at ourselves. We like to be able to understand all of that. We like to worship God. We love freedom and worship. But there's some underlying things that are just part of the DNA, like the fabric of what makes this place second place. And I would say that if you were to peel back all of that stuff and, un and get to the underbelly of what really makes this place tick, it's this idea of grace. Because um, I would say that the way that I think, the way that I interact with you, I hope that, man, I hope that we develop a culture of grace rather than a culture of performance. And as you think about this, there's a couple of things to think about. Number one is that our motive determines our values, and our values determine our actions. So when we have a motive, like our desire is to please God, then our value will be striving to be all that God wants me to be, and then my action will be working on my sin to gain an intimate relationship with God. This is the domino effect of motives and values and actions. But when my, my motive is to trust God, trust God who he says he is and who he says I am, then what happens is my value, my value becomes living out of who God says I am. And my action becomes standing with God, with my sin in front of me, working on it together. Do you see how that works? You see, this idea that nothing that you have done, nothing that you're doing now, and nothing that you will do will ever gain you God's favor. That is salvation by grace. That is a tough pill to swallow. And we build all kinds of constructs and measurements and all kinds of things. And we have all kinds of voices in our head saying that we are not good enough, that we didn't do it well enough, that we didn't go far enough, that we have missed it. 
And we are living in the room of good intentions. Sure, you intend to do well, you intend to do awesome, but you don't. And so you constantly stuff away all the shortcomings, the things that you don't want anyone to know, and you hide them and you hide behind a mask. In the room of good intentions, it's all about sinning less, less but there's disappointment, there's hiding sin, and there's this this thing that we kind of run into that says, what else do I have to do to get God to like me more? And on the other side, when we walk into and live in the room of grace, we're alive, we're honest, we love, we're accepted, and we get to live into God's life for us. Now, some of you are already uncomfortable and saying, like, well, what? wait a second, you mean that I'm not supposed to please God? Absolutely not. Pleasing God is very important. Hebrews 11.6, if you want to turn there, you can, but Hebrews 11.6 is a common verse. If you've been around church, it says this, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So maybe what you see here is that, okay, God, pleasing God is important, but the, notice what comes before pleasing God, that it is without faith. It is impossible to please God. The word faith is translated trust. It's belief. It's putting your faith in God that allows you to then live a life that's pleasing to God because you're living out of who God says you are and not striving to work on your sin to be all that God wants you to be. So this is what we're presented with. This is the dilemma. This is kind of where we're at. And I want to just help us unpack the room of good intentions and the path of pleasing God because it leads to a deadly trap. And what, it, what it's common in the book, and, and, and you'll hear it also in class or in, in, on a podcast, is this idea of sin management. Sin management is what we have to buy into when we're in the room of good intentions. And that comes out in an equation, which is this. More right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. Makes sense, right? Like, I just need to do more right things and less wrong things, and then I'm going to be more like Jesus. And it's all about what I am doing, that I need to do this, that I just need to focus on this. But you know, if you've lived down that path, if you've walked into that room, if you've strived to be all that God wants you to be, you know that you failed many times. That it's a recipe for disappointment. And it disregards what God did for you and what he purchased for you at an infinite cost. The righteousness of Christ. You see, this is the, the path. This is, and, and so in this place, in this room, it's all about performance and it's all about losing hope because you realize that you can't keep up the facade. It's impossible. And so we lose our motivation. We lose it. And we look at, you got to remember, look at Philippians 3.9. Philippians 3.9, classic passage. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of what you do. No. On the basis of of trusting and putting your faith in God. This is 
a mind blower. This is a game changer. Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says this. You foolish Galatians. And for some of us, for me, it's like, you foolish Joe, you foolish second placers, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And then he's kind of sarcastic. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He's saying, you started with the Spirit, stay in the Spirit, but what do we do as humans? We revert back to measuring. We revert back to, to marking things and saying, what, how have I performed this week? How have I worked to become liked by God? And Paul continues in Galatians 2. And he says in Galatians 2, verses 16 through 18, we got that one? faith? Is that coming up? There you go. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put on our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Skipping down to the bold point there, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Some of you hate the message paraphrase, but basically in the message it says, if I rebuild the barn that I just destroyed, it's, I'm crazy. And going back to a performance mentality and asking yourself, you know what, God is only pleased with me by what I do, reverts us back to living as we would have lived long ago with the law. And so... God is saying to us today, which road are you on? Which room are you in? There's all kinds of people throughout Scripture that have just fallen into this deadly trap of more right behavior, less wrong behavior equals godliness. Cain and Saul and many throughout Scripture. We said something last week that I think kind of struck a nerve, and it was this phrase, that unresolved sin is always buried alive. And we said last week that the reason for that is because there's nothing inside of us that can absorb sin. Another way to say it is that we cannot solve our sin problem on our own. There's nothing that we can do. But we, when we get on the path of trusting God, we step over the line of faith, what happens is we get a new identity. We are given a wholesale change of our identity. And we are no longer who we were before. This is why we baptize. This is why we immerse. We see someone go under the water and they come out as a symbol of becoming brand new in their life in the kingdom of God. This is, this is what it's all about. This ID, this identity. We have a new heart. Instead of a heart of stone, we have a heart of flesh. God gives us this and he makes us soft and he makes us um, sensitive to what his spirit is doing in our life. And if we choose to, we can move with that spirit or we can choose to go backwards and go back to the life of trying to check all the boxes. And we realize and forget at the same time, that we, we have actually this new identity. Ephesians is a great book that kind of talks about that. Ephesians 1 talks about that we're blessed and that we're chosen and holy, that we're adopted, forgiven, and favored. Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that we're close to God. Ephesians 3 talks about that we're promised great things. Ephesians 5 says that we're cherished. But how many days out of 365 do you live out of that identity? Can you count them on one hand? Or how many days do you wake up feeling unworthy? Feeling like you're a sinner. 
feeling like you're struggling, feeling like, man, I can't even talk to God based on what I did yesterday. I have screwed my life up. I am unworthy. I am unacceptable to God. These are the things and these are the voices that many times are our voices in our head, speaking things into our brain and into our thoughts that simply tear us down. You see, the idea is that, you know, a caterpillar is a butterfly, just not yet. Right? Biology 101. Caterpillars become butterflies. But everything that is needed to create the butterfly is already in the caterpillar. And everything that God intends for you to be is already in you. That one is a game changer. But there is this thing, right? Maybe you've known people I, called the, the Great Disconnect. Um, the book calls it that. And, and this idea where you see someone who's like really focused, man. They are, man, someone to look up to. And then the mask comes off and you realize that they aren't who they said they were. Anybody ever been there? The book talks about... Um, a person, uh, a missionary couple, that they move their entire family across continents and they're going to reach people who need hope, that don't know Jesus, that need to understand his story and to give their life. And they move their, their family all the way across the world to do that and they come back after a couple years to raise money and they're at a conference and the wife comes up to one of the conference leaders and says, you know what, i got to come clean. My husband has been embezzling money for the last couple of years and has been taking it from the ministry and I cannot live any longer this way. I have to tell someone. How, how does someone who moves their family all the way across the world, how are they capable of such deception? It's the great disconnect. It's saying that, you know what, there's something inside me that I need to resolve with God, but I'm going to hide it because I can't go anywhere safe. There is nowhere safe. There is no room of grace. It's all about performance, so I have to keep up the facade, and it snowballs out of control until you get a situation like that. Or how about this example where there's a professional counselor who is counseling people about depression, about anxiety, about addiction, and they have all the right answers for all their clients. And in the midst of counseling that, those people, they're struggling with a deep, deep depression. And they're going to they're gonna take two weeks off for vacation, so they, t- they tell their, their boss. But re- in reality, they're checking themselves into a rehab so that they can get better. How does it happen that someone can have all the right answers for everyone else, but struggles to actually be real with themselves? It's a great disconnect. Or how about the marriage counselors, a couple that, that counsel couples about their marriage and their marriage that are on the rocks and about to be torn apart and they're able to work with them. They speak at conferences and they're able to give, to give hope to couples so that they can hold on and keep their marriages together and yet behind the scenes they're secretly considering divorcing themselves. How does that happen where somebody is able to speak at conferences and help so many couples but at the same time their own marriage is on the rocks? It's the great disconnect. We've made it into something about performance. Or how about the example where a high school kid is on a youth outing and finds a wallet, opens up the wallet, doesn't see an ID, realizes there's $100 in here. 
keeps the wallet in the hundred bucks. And the next day on the youth outing, the youth pastor gets up and says, hey, I just wanted you to know that Mark lost his wallet. Um, if anybody finds it, um, let me know. It's been gone for a couple days. And the kid takes the wallet, pockets the hundred bucks, and throws the wallet into a cornfield so that no one knows that he had taken it. How does somebody who's on a youth outing and has given their heart to Christ actually take somebody else's money that's in their youth group? What a jerk. That was me. I remember throwing the wallet into the cornfield and it just ripped me apart. How could I do that? And I say that to you and I say this, do you still love me? Is this a room of grace? Thank you. I'm excited about that. Because here's the reason why. That was the easy story for me to tell you guys. In a, in a room of good intentions, it would be very, very dangerous for me to do that. But I believe and I want you to know that this is a room of grace. Where God knew, he knew that I would do that. And he also knew Joe, someday you're going to stand in front of a church and you're going to teach and you're going to pastor it and you're going to lead. And he said, I'm going to use you anyway. And you have your own story of where you've fallen short. And God knew that you were going to take that. Whatever good thing that that story is in me, whatever I have in there that is about, you know, whatever goodness that I had, I twisted it and I turned it into throwing a wallet into a cornfield. And I'm telling you right now, you do the same thing. The goodness that God has put in you, we twist it and we use it for, for evil. And God says, I know you're going to do that. And when you come back and when you surrender and when you allow me to work with you on your stuff, I'm going to use you, I'm going to mature you, and I'm going to change the world through you because I have a dream for you that will blow your mind. It's way better than yours. I don't know if we get it, I don't know if we can understand this fully, even in just a 30-minute message. I don't know. But I'm going to read from this book because I was going to try to paraphrase it, but it's just so much better just to read it. And this is where John talks about something called the New Testament gamble. Everybody say gamble. gamble. All right, deep breath. You ready? We discover in the room of grace that the almost unthinkable has happened. God has shown all his cards. He reveals a breathtaking protection that brings us out of hiding. In essence, God says this, and this is the gamble. What if I tell them who they are? What if I tell them I love them and will always love them? That I love them right now, no matter what they've done, as much as I love my only son. That there's nothing that they can do to make my love Go away. What if I tell them there are no lists? What if I tell them I don't keep a log of past offenses, of how little they pray, how often they've let me down and made promises that they don't keep? What if I tell them that they are righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I tell them that they can stop beating themselves up, that they can stop being so formal and stiff and jumpy around me? What if I tell them that I'm crazy about them? 
What if I tell them that even if they run to the ends of the earth and do the most horrible, unthinkable things, that when they come back, I'll receive them with tears and a party? What if I tell them that if I am their Savior, they're going to heaven no matter what, it's a done deal? What if I tell them that they have a new nature, saints, not sinners, who should now be buck up and be better if they are any kind of Christian after all that I've done for them? What if I tell them that I actually live in them now? That I've put my love, my power, my nature inside of them at their disposal? What if I tell them that they don't have to put on a mask, that it is okay to be who they are at this moment with all of their junk, that they don't need to pretend about how close we are, how much they pray or don't, how much Bible they read or don't? What if they knew they don't have to look over their shoulder for fear if things get too good, the other shoe's going to drop? What if they knew I will never, ever use the word punish in relation to them? What if they knew that when they mess up, I will never get them back? What if they are convinced that bad circumstances are not my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how little they sin, but how much they let me love them? Let me reread that. What if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how, much, how little they sin, but how much they let me love them? What if I tell them they can hurt my heart, but I will never hurt theirs? What if I tell them I like Eric Clapton music too? And what if I tell them I never really liked the Christmas handbell deal with the white gloves? What if I tell them they can open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? Mm. What if I tell them that there is no secret agenda and there's no trap door? What if I tell them it isn't about their self-effort, but about allowing me to live my life through them? When you stand at the crossroads, you decide which road to choose largely upon how you see God's gamble. Do I really believe this is stuff is going to hold up for me? This is the way of life in the room of grace. It is the way home to healing, joy, peace, fulfillment, contentment, and release into God's dreams for us. It almost feels like we're stealing silverware from the king's house, doesn't it? But truth is, the king paid a lot so that you wouldn't have to try to steal any silverware. It's actually he gets to give it to you and other stuff so big and good and beautiful that we couldn't even begin to stuff it into our bag of loot. Wow, it sure does take the eyes some adjust, adjustment to look into a light that bright. Guys, this idea will change the way that you get up tomorrow morning. It will change the way you walk out of this room. When you realize that there is a room of grace that you can live in, that you can live out of who God says you are, the band can come up, and you can begin to allow God to work with you on your sin. Are we condoning sin and saying just do whatever? Absolutely not. Remember, pleasing God is a byproduct. It is the fruit of trusting God. But it's not about resolving your issues behind a mask. It's about resolving your issues with God's help and with God himself, stepping through every single day. This is revolutionary. For some of us, we're ready. Like we have lived in the room of good intentions long enough. We took the path of pleasing God. We have screwed it up. We have completely messed up our lives. And God knew it. And he's telling you, I will still use you. 
as you allow me to work through you. God wants to take you from the the room of good intentions, from the path of pleasing God, and get you on the path of trusting him because trusting God is what produces the fruit of pleasing God. But you have to start there. If you get it out of order, like obey and trust, it never goes that way. It's always trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. When you get those out of order, we become a performance-minded culture in this room. And we're not going to do that. We're going to live in grace. For some of you, you're like, man, I need to process this. I have so much that I need. You may need to, to get with a trusted friend this week. You may need to pray after this service. I'll be like, I'm usually like over here somewhere. If you want to pray, I will pray with you. I don't know where you're at in processing, but know this, that through worship, we can bring our baggage to God. That through these songs that have been chosen, that we can bring our baggage to God. So why don't we stand and just ask God to put us in the room of grace today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this unbelievable freedom that we have. Lord, that we are broken. We are not able to live up to a standard that's in our head, let alone the standard that's in other people's heads. And so, Lord, we surrender to you right now. We ask, God, that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, as you've stirred this group of people today, Lord, as you've worked inside their heart, Lord, you've revealed some things to us to say, God, I don't want to hide anymore. I want to come before you as a broken person, allowing you to mend me and heal me and bring me to the dream that you have for me. Instead of striving to be all that you want me to be, God, I want to live out of who you say I am. Not who I'm going to be, but who I am right now. The power, the freedom, the anointing that I already have right now. Lord, free us today. Lord, I believe, Lord God, that this idea will literally change the course of our lives and our life with you. God, may these words that we sing May the words that come out of our mouths truly come out of our heart as we worship you, Lord God, with all that we are. In Jesus' name.